You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Our friends Katie and Lyle at SunPowered Yacht helped us expand our solar array. They're SunPower authorized dealer and offer both flexible panels and fixed frame panels ranging from 50 watts to 410 watts. These are super high efficiency solar panels, which means more power in less space. Katie and Lyle are both sailors and have lived off the grid for over eight years. They provide free consultation to help you size and build a DIY system. Check out their website for more info sunpoweredyachts.com and use the promo code MORSEALPHA to get 10% off their flexible panels. Today's podcast is about medical preparedness at sea, and I kind of want to open that up more broadly to just general emergencies at sea. Um, But medical preparedness, according to the U.S. Coast Guard in 2015 in U.S. waters, 5,560 boats were involved in accidents with injuries or deaths. And only five people, only five people of the skippers that were involved, five of the skippers, only five of them had American Red Cross first aid training, which is a basic two-day course. Um, And so when I think about medical preparedness at sea, um, I, I realize that a lot of people are gearing up their boat, buying all the bilge pumps and the harnesses and all the extra safety equipment, but maybe not quite pre- preparing for medical emergencies, which is certainly something we need to be ready for out there. So I have some great guests aboard. I want to make one caveat before we talk a little more. This podcast is not a substitute for training, not even the most basic training, but hopefully it'll inspire people to get some training for medical preparedness. Um, Our first guest is Deborah Hayes. She's a Wilderness Medical Associates instructor. She's been a professional mariner for 30 years working on educational tall ships and yachts. She's an EMT and a U.S. Coast Guard medical person in charge and has served as a medical officer on several vessels. And coincidentally, she and Ben, my husband, both graduated from Connecticut College. Ah, okay. Uh, Our other guest is Brian Notice. Uh, He joined the Coast Guard in 2011 and has been a helicopter rescue swimmer for nine years, stationed in Port Angeles, Washington, and currently in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. He is certified as a basic EMT with training in advanced helicopter rescue techniques, rope rescue, Arctic survival, and land navigation. And I have to, I'm smiling as I read this because honestly, anytime I think of, anytime lately that I think of advanced helicopter techniques, I can see my son and I sitting on the couch saying, let's get the people and jumping off the couch and collecting all the stuffed animals and bringing them back to the couch and saying, are you okay? No, I'm not okay. Give them a kiss. They're all better. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes. (laughs) We do this a lot. Future future rescue swimmer there. Um, So I wanted to start with you, Deb, because you do the Wilderness First Aid and First Responder courses, and I've taken that Wilderness First Responder course a dozen times. And um, can you give me just the nuts and bolts on what this certification is? What is Wilderness First Aid versus regular First Aid? 
Wilderness First Aid is a slightly more in-depth course, and the goal is to make people think how to judge a medical situation to see whether it's an emergency or not. The skill sets are pretty similar, but the goal is for the person who takes the first aid course. Um, and honestly, I teach a lot more of the wilderness first responder courses, but the wilderness first aid course is for you to think in terms of if I'm, if I have to work with this person from a medical point of view for a day or two days, what do I need to know? And it sounds like in terms of the wilderness first aid, you had said you might be working with a patient for a few days. Whereas if we take a regular first aid course, at our local hospital or something like that, you're assuming that medical help is on the way. Correct. Yeah. 15 minutes away or something like that. Correct. And um, the, again, with the, the first responder course for the cruising audience, that is much more, there's a, a four-day course, which is a wilderness advanced first aid, and then there's a wilderness first responder course, which is seven to eight days. And for the cruising audience, those are much more in-depth and give you a lot more uh, anatomy and physiology and systems information so that you have a, a better understanding of how the human body works so you can figure out, again, is this something serious that's going on when someone gets hurt or is ill. I wanted to just kind of um, jump right into the exciting part of all of this. You know, this is probably what everybody's wanting to hear who's listening is like, what's the craziest scenario that you've ever had to deal with? What's the craziest thing that you've seen or the most challenging where your heart is just elevated and your body tingles as you're trying to help people Boy, I'd let Brian go first on this one, because luckily <laughs> I've been lucky enough through just prevention and drilling and things like that to keep those at a pretty low situation percentage-wise. Uh, well, you know, as EMTs, we don't provide a ton of medical care, but we do medevacs, you know, maritime medevacs, uh, inland search and rescue medevacs, stuff like that. Um one of the most exciting cases I've had was actually recently this summer was really busy. And this was a medevac off of uh, Mount Washington up in New Hampshire. And it's the tallest peak, I think, in New England. We do a lot of inland search and rescue training. And I always had this joke, you know, because we don't get called too often to mountain medevacs. And I had this joke like, oh, today we're going to get a medevac off Mount Washington, you know. And I never thought it would actually happen because the National Guard does a lot of those. And they called us because the weather was really bad. Uh, the weather was super foggy. They said a, a skier had fallen uh, about 400 feet down Tuckerman's Ravine. And so they launched us on that. I got all of my inland search and rescue gear because I didn't know the, the situation. I didn't know if I'd have to possibly be with the patient overnight, if this is kind of a remote area or if it would be kind of a cut and dry hoist. Uh, so I, I grabbed all my gear to stay overnight, tents, sleeping bags, you know, jet boils, stuff like that. I think it, we had about an hour transit up to Mount Washington. The hiker was mm -hmm. anywhere from 4,500 to about 5,000 feet up the mountain. 
which presents its own challenges because of altitude and, and stuff like that. Luckily, our Blackhawk helicopter can handle it. So one of the biggest challenges in that situation was the weather. Uh, we made it to an airfield about 20 miles away and landed, and we kind of reassess the risk versus gain situation because the fog was about 200 feet above the ground. The fog was all the way up to the base of the mountain. So we weren't sure if we'd be able to get up to the point where the skier had fallen. We kind of discussed it as a crew. Uh, we had the safety officer on board at that time. So we had a really good discussion about how can we affect this rescue? How can we make this happen? And we ended up following a road believe it or not, we basically stayed about 150 feet to 200 feet above this road. And we followed this road all the way up through Conway and then up to the base of the mountain. Definitely kind of edge of your seat, uh, intense flying, mm -hmm. because we don't know if the fog is going to come down and we're going to lose visibility at any time. I had the, the FLIR, the forward-looking infrared. I was using that kind of to look out for obstacles, towers, and, and stuff, because this is an area that we're not super familiar with. So we, we kind of, we went low and slow along this road. We got to the bottom of the mountain, and we decided we could kind of creep up the mountain just above the trees. The Forest Service and the fire department did an excellent job. They hiked this guy out about three miles from where he fell through the snow on a sked, which is like a sled litter. And mm -hmm. they brought him to a point where we could uh, find it because it wasn't easy to find with the fog and everything going on. We found the area. They put me down to the spot. We transferred the patient from uh, their litter into ours so we could hoist him. He was pretty busted up. He had broken about 10 ribs, had a collapsed lung. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, luckily the fire department had a an excellent paramedic on scene. Mm -hmm. So we decided to take the paramedic with us and then we hoisted the patient and I, I'm I'm working our trail line which is kind of a guideline for the litter to make sure it doesn't spin and so we can control it on the way up. So on the way up I'm looking and there's kind of a cliff above us and I can see the fog actually physically moving down the side of the mountain towards the helicopter. And what I didn't know is the pilots in the flight mech, they could see the fog moving up the side of the mountain, which I couldn't see, thank goodness, because that would have made it a little more stressful. So it was closing but, in on you from both sides. Yeah, it was kind of coming coming down from above and up from the bottom. We were about to get sandwiched in. And so the whole time I'm saying, please stop fog, <laughs> give us a window. And uh, Luckily, we had the perfect window. We got the guy in the helicopter. They picked me up. We went straight to uh, main medical center and dropped him off. And mm -hmm. the last I heard, uh, we heard from his sister. He was doing great. And she said he'll probably be up there skiing again next year. That does so certainly sound like an adventure. And I was thinking, you know, as, as you were talking and how um, Deb said that she didn't have many crazy stories like that because her goal is to always keep, keep, you know, prevention, keep incidents like that low. And I think that's probably the different in perspectives because, Brian, you don't come in until it is pretty serious. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking when um, when I saw who the other guest was going to be, we are at absolute, not really, but mm -hmm. absolute ends, different ends of the spectrum for that very reason is spending so much time with mm -hmm. drilling education, um, discussions, going over case studies just of other people's incidences to try and prevent that. Because with the, 
the time that I spent at sea, it was almost always on a sail training vessel. So for perspective, a, a large portion of the folks who were on board when we were sailing were very new at sailing, but the U.S. Coast Guard considers them part of the crew. They have safety-sensitive positions, and they actually have positions on the station bill. And so since you're dealing with folks who are not professional mariners or folks who have been cruising for years and years and years and who really know sailboats, that they're doing this as a life adventure and you spend lots of time with the drills and lots of, before you even leave the dock, you know, you're, you're anchored or you're tied up for a day or two or three, making sure you do walkthroughs of every single one of the drills. So, you know, fire, abandoned ship, uh, person overboard um, and mm -hmm. going over the gear, pulling the gear out, making sure everybody knows where it is, how it works, um, emphasizing on the station bill, hi, this is what you do and this is um, the equipment you're going to be using. And absolutely on the station bill, look at the mm -hmm. assignment above you and below you because those people may not be available to respond to the emergencies. And then you go out and then on a sailing school vessel, um, you are required to do the drills once a week. So everybody gets really good at their position. And mm -hmm. uh, so just staying in terms of the medical preparedness, the, the, because you're drilling every week, that was always a challenge to make them interesting and not predictable. So you would try and put in a medical incident in every one of those scenarios. And that's pretty easy to do for fire or um, person overboard, but with abandoned ship, you're usually thinking, okay, get the gear, get ready, get to the life raft, stand by. And the, the folks that I know of who actually have been involved in abandoned ship, there usually is a medical incident because something has gone wrong. It's a storm, it's night, it's fire, it's an explosion, mm -hmm. it's a collision, it's an elision, something like that. And so putting the, the medical incident in, in the drills, you've already had the people, your crew, your, your students walk through these medical emergencies before they ever happen. Oh, I feel yeah. like um, um, for us, the, like you, we're trying to prevent problems at sea. You know, we don't want to have to call for help. We don't want to have to mobilize. It sounds like you had a ton of people rescuing one person in that incident on the mountain. So it's a... You, you want to be able to take care of things on your own boat. And I think for us, we have a pretty good safety record. But what we do see most often is dehydration. And I think what, what I notice is that when you get on a sailboat and you're out sitting in the sun, even if it's foggy or cloudy, you're outside all day and there's wind and there's the salt air, and it just requires so much more water for your body <laughs> than sitting in my house where I am right now. And so I think a lot of times people don't realize that right away, and it takes some time, and they're used to drinking however many cups of water or water bottles a day, and they kind of keep on that same path, but really they need to be drinking a whole lot more. And so we haven't seen, like, severe dehydration, but what happens is um, – when people don't drink enough, they get fatigued. They're not as sharp when they're in their mind. They're not as quick to react to things. And so maybe they can't stay up during watch, or maybe they can't keep their food down. They get seasick more easily, or maybe they're just not as stable on their feet and the boat's moving around and they might trip and bump into something and hurt themselves. And so it's like that slow decline in energy and sharpness that can cause 
other problems. And so, I mean, we try, try, we have, you know, the lemonade and the hot cocoa and things like that to encourage drinking more. But um, even with adults who know the importance, you know, we talk about the importance of drinking. Well, one of the other problems is um, Mm -hmm. the idea that when you start drinking more and more water, that means you got to pee more and more. And <laughs> honest, I, I, yeah, anybody who ever gets remotely seasick mm-hmm. knows the last place you want to be is down below to use the head. And so it's very common to see that yes. um, mm-hmm. that voluntary I'll just wait till the storm yeah, voluntary <laughs> restriction of water intake. And in the in the notes I sent to you, the idea of recognizing the early signs and symptoms of volume shock, mm-hmm. and the idea is dehydration does lead to a life threatening situation mm-hmm. that is everything you just talked about. That that's how you recognize it. The person starts to slow down. They start to feel a little bit under under the weather, if you will. And the easiest way to to sort of figure that one out is just just ask someone hey have you peed lately you know what are your ins and outs Mm -hmm. have you gone to the bathroom today and they may not tell you exactly how much water they've had to drink but if you can just ask a couple of innocent questions about hey you know i i haven't seen you use the head lately Mm -hmm. and or i haven't seen you go down below um and that's a pretty easy way of telling if someone has had enough to drink but from a medical standpoint and sort of what the phrase we use when I'm teaching my classes is the field assessment and a field assessment of recognizing volume shock in someone. And it's the exact same thing in the urban environment versus uh, at sea is learn how to take a pulse, learn how to recognize these early signs when someone is having volume shock. So dehydration that's led into a dangerous situation our body compensates by trying to save itself and our heart rate Mm -hmm. rate increases. So our pulse gets higher, our respiratory rate increases. So the person breathes a little faster. We are trying to um, keep as much blood volume in the vital organs. So the skin gets pale. And so those are Mm -hmm. the pretty, and they stop peeing as much because your body's trying to save that precious fluid. And so those are pretty easy ways to figure Mm -hmm. out if somebody is in trouble. And if they cross the line and start to really act differently so that they're really groggy or very slow or even start to change a level of consciousness, then then that's the dangerous sign. That's showing you that the body is starting to not be able to compensate for this lack of fluids. So that goes back to the original discussion that if you can take some of these courses and U.S. Sailing has them, and there are a number of these wilderness um, organizations that teach them that can teach someone with virtually no medical background before how to recognize some of these these common issues that happen at sea. And as you mentioned earlier, the seasickness really, really just adds insult to Mm -hmm. injury on that one. I remember one instance, Deb, that you were talking about how some people don't want to drink water because they don't want to have to use the head. And I actually did sail with a man who, and you know, full grown adult man who made a choice like we were in a rough passage and it was going to be five I mean the whole trip was like five or eight days or something I don't know how long the storm was going to last but 
it was rough yeah. and he he just stopped drinking water because yep. he didn't want to go into the head and it was too dangerous to pee off the side of the boat you know we had to stay in the cockpit and because the waves were too big and it just it just went downhill from there and it was really hard to get get him to drink water like here can you take a sip of this would you like some hot cocoa would you yeah, like some noodle yeah. soup would you and like, i had you know, a student anything? who did the exact same thing and uh, but on the flip side this particular student yeah didn't want to pass a stool he she did not want to use the onboard head so she was waiting right literally till we got to port in five days so she could use a porcelain flusher and that's too long so, yeah <laughs> yeah too wow. long but but <laughs> it was a teenager and she didn't absolutely did not want to use the head she did not want to use the head and was going to wait for port period yeah, I can add yeah. to that the subject of dehydration, mm -hmm. too, because we do a lot of maritime medevacs with the fishing fleet. And one of the big problems with the fishing fleet is, as you know, those guys, they work hard. They work 16 to 20 hour days. I've had multiple medevacs off fishing vessels where basically the information we got was this guy was working on the stern of the vessel, <clears throat> doing whatever he was doing, passed out, went unconscious and hit his head. Uh, we have those all the time. And so we go and we try to kind of get a medical assessment and find out like, well, what happened? When was the last time you drank water? And they go, oh, I don't know. When was the last time you ate food? Uh, a while ago. You know, these guys will work so hard without adequate nutrition and adequate hydration. And then, you know, they'll pass out to the point of them passing out to where they need to be medevaced, where they have a head wound or something. And then add on to that the possibility that some of these guys are diabetic and don't even know it. I had a guy who passed out unconscious. We had to medevac him off a fishing boat. And I asked him, you know, have you any history of diabetes? He said, I don't know. And so we got him in the helicopter. I gave him glutase, which is our glucose uh, gel, which tastes really good. At least he thought it was really good. <laughs> and um, he perked right up after I gave that to him. Um, so I kind of suspected that he might've, uh, been either pre-diabetic or had some diabetes at that point, but it's a huge problem. People, like you were saying, like Deborah was saying, people get groggy, you get a little mm -hmm. confused and then all of a sudden you're in big seas and there's things swinging around on the boat. You're not completely alert. We had a, a guy in my shop that had a medevac of a guy who was racing himself on a door on a fishing boat and the steel door basically closed on his arm, compound fracture of the humerus outside the skin and had to be medevaced immediately. And some of those things mm -hmm. that you let lapse, those little things you forget to do, like, oh, did we dog the door? Did we, you know, make sure it's secure? Those things can turn into a huge Yeah, just because someone has lost their situational yeah. awareness because their brain yeah. just isn't isn't happy anymore. And the, the other thing, I know we always think of cruising in warm, mm -hmm. sunny places, but we all know if you're working in a cold environment, you're just not as conscientious about drinking because you're thinking, oh, I'm not sweating. I don't need water. But but again, and I'm going to just mention that the common gender dish difference, it's so much harder typically when you're in foul weather here to go to the bathroom if you're a woman versus a man. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of the, the just not drinking because you just don't want to go through all the hassle of 
taken off all those layers of clothing and going down below when all the conditions are really uncomfortable. And most of the folks I know who sail in really bad conditions, maybe 60% of them get some degree of seasickness and you absolutely never, never want to go down below when you're seasick. So you know, if you combine a, a passage like mm-hmm. a delivery down in the fall or a delivery coming home and Oh, I don't know, in, in May or something like that. I mean, one of the coldest times I've ever had been is coming back from the Bahamas in a in sort of an early May delivery, and it was 32 degrees off a of block island. And mm-hmm. you bet no one was drinking water at that point because it was just cold and we had tons of layers on and it was just too much of an inconvenience to go to the bathroom. I want to switch gears for a moment and think about gear because I have a burning question. And since you're here, I want to ask you this. In terms of PLBs, which you mentioned in, in your message to us, um, how important they are for being rescued. Um, so this would be after we've done all our prevention, we still need help, which can happen no matter, even to the greatest sailors. The PLBs are the personal locator beacons that you can wear on your life jacket and your PFD. The question I have about that is, can you tell me more about why that's so important? And also, which PLB is better? Because there's one type of PLB that transmits a signal via AIS to ships in the vicinity, and there's another type of PLB that transmits a signal via satellite to a ground station like the Coast Guard. As rescue swimmers and our flight crews, we carry PLBs on us that have the capability of 406 megahertz. Um, and that is the uh, transmission that goes to the satellite and gives a GPS signal to the Coast Guard and other agencies and so when you have the one that has the satellite GPS capability, as opposed to just the radio frequencies, which the radio frequencies help too, we can follow that. But the satellite GPS helps us locate you within nine feet anywhere on earth. Yes, but you might be further away than these ships in the area. Yeah, that's true. You know, if you're well, at your station, shore-based station waiting for an emergency call, it might take you absolutely. longer. So there's, I think, feel like there's a give and a take, and it's hard to know which one's. Yeah, I mean, we utilize both of them, but uh, for us, the GPS PLB is clutch because on the cases that that I've had where a boat has has actually sunk or mm-hmm. has capsized, um, I had two last summer. Uh, there were three guys on a fishing boat, seventy-five miles offshore of Montauk. In July, thankfully, it wasn't too cold. They had, I can't remember what it's called. It's something signal, but it's the PLB that you can actually send huh. text messages. Oh, wow. So it's almost yeah, like an is, inReach or awesome. something like that? So, inReach. Yeah, that's, okay. That's what yep. it's called. Yep. Yes, exactly. So they had an inReach. So as we're getting launched, we're actually getting updates from our sector field office um, down in Long Island saying we got a text message saying that they're abandoning ship they put on survival suits now we've got mm-hmm. a text message that they're in their raft um and so then so we'll you know we what go to out, look for i never and, thought and of that with the exactly. average that they were actually yeah, we waterproof kinda, enough particularly in, in salt water to survive that's interesting huh oh absolutely it's it's an amazing device and mm-hmm. uh to the point where i deployed and uh got these three guys up in the helicopter. We hoisted them and I had to turn off the inReach after that. It was still going. It was still sending a signal. Mm-hmm. Those types of devices are so huge. I mean, of all the survival gear that we have, flares, signal mirrors, whistles, you know, strobe lights, 
your PLB is so. Going can to I be ask a question in terms of gear nowadays? Because I've been ashore for a little while, and are, do mm-hmm. you find that folks are carrying SART search and rescue transponders at all in the cruising world or on um, any of the fishing vessels or the vessels that you're involved with, Brian, or anyone in this group? Are people carrying SARTs? I feel like um, AI, the little AIS beacons do the same thing. They're so small and then people just wear them all the time. You know, if you have those inflatable life jackets, you can put it inside it. And so when it inflates, it's a visible and then it sends a signal back to the boat. And so you, the person overboard can show up on the AIS screen. You know, if there's still someone in command of the boat and they can steer the boat back to that person. Um, but yeah, that's that sounds like a, like a Raycon buoy or something like it, that. Well, that's what um, it, it, that's how it, it works. Instead of, yeah. it, that's how it works. Exactly. So instead of looking mm-hmm. like a Morse code alpha or something like that on the radar yeah. screen, it's just a dot and it's, it's good equipment for, um, uh, for a abandoned ship. Cause that just helps you yeah. once the vessel, the rescue vessels are in the area, it helps get to you. So anyway, just another so sort this, of tool in the bag. This makes me think about right now we're, we're, redoing our ditch bag and our yeah. and our uh first aid kit because when i when we bought our boat it came with this massive first aid kit it takes up a whole locker it's like the size of a uh checked luggage suitcase yeah. <laughs> and um and our and our abandoned ship bag was the same way it's this huge duffel it only fits under the table and then your feet can't go there and and um we just realized that first of all for the first aid kit you know i don't know how, i don't I'm not going to staple anybody up. I've given myself stitches, but the staple, I'm not, I don't think I really know how to do that. (laughs) I should probably learn, but you know, it just had so much stuff in it that, um, that we could, we could patch up a hundred men and still have supplies left in this, in this, uh, first aid kit. (laughs) And so we were we're redoing that and trying (laughs) to just take what we know how to use Mm -hmm what we'll need and a little bit of extras. And then, cause we can always resupply it. And then yeah. the, the ditch bag, we realize we had this huge bag and you know, you go online and you look for lists, best stuff to put in an abandoned ship bag. And, and it has like, oh, bring a fishing line and bring a deck of cards. Cause you might be in the life raft for a long time. And I, I just feel like this bag is so massive and cumbersome now that we're not gonna be able to get it into the life raft when we need to. And especially if we're gonna be swimming to the life raft, if God forbid that happened. And um, I just didn't think we're not in a Steve Callahan situation anymore, who's the author of Adrift. We're no longer gonna be thinking, can I survive in this life raft long enough to get myself to shore? And now instead we're thinking, can I survive in this long life raft long enough for someone to come and help me? And can I let them know that I'm here. Yeah. So it's just a different perspective now for us for what we're packing in that ditch bag. And it would be things like this. all our comm stuff, all our locator beacons, our EPIRB, an extra VHF, our cell phones even, you know. Extra batteries yeah. for all of those electronics yes. if you can. Yeah, mm-hmm. and honestly, when you're, when you're putting that list together, mm-hmm. uh, the idea is just thinking maybe at the, at the outside survival for 48 hours as a mm-hmm. bad case scenario and then gear that's in there to help you be found and basically mm-hmm. survive for 48 hours. But the medical gear, just things that you know how to use and can have multi-purposes as opposed to something very specific. 
but Ben, you probably know about the Concordia, the Canadian sail training vessel that went off the coast of Brazil, and they were in the life raft for 48 hours. And that is unheard of. That's the exception rather than the rule because the, mm-hmm. the rescue and response is so good. But again, the things for the, the life raft gear, you know, we used to have um, on uh, the last sailing vessel I worked on was a 70 foot sloop. And it was two yellow canisters and a and a pelican box, a black pelican box. And that was our ditch bag for 10 people. Um, we had life rafts, 20 person life rafts that were packed with the gear that comes with ocean service life rafts. But in the ditch bag was basically things that will help us get found faster. So more flares, a port, a handheld GPS. But the other thing, just going back to the medical preparedness for folks to think about, just in case they haven't, is if there are any medications that will alter your life mm-hmm. if you can't have them for 24 to 48 hours, or as I got older, like two or three extra pair of glasses, the, mm-hmm. it, you know, and you don't, think of that. And it can be just, you know, 2.5s or something like that. The And headlamps, waterproof headlamps, the things mm-hmm. that if you have to operate in the dark in a life raft, which is pitching around, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable, you know, you're probably going to be seasick, you're not functioning well, you want to have all of those uh, simple things that help you be able to see things. And yeah, I, I'm jumping around, but only because of the Concordia anniversary. One of the things they found the the captain, a gentleman named Bill Curry, wrote, had all the crew and students who were on board, this was a sail training vessel, write down their feedback for the life raft companies of what worked mm-hmm. and what didn't work. And the things that didn't work were very surprising. And these were ocean service life rafts. The flashlights, the waterproof flashlights didn't work. The dome light in the life raft um, died after a couple of hours. All the gear was packaged in long cylindrical bags. So in order to get the emergency water, the emergency food, the uh, any of the gear, you had to basically dump the whole bag on the floor of the mm-hmm. life raft. So you've got seasick people in the dark, in big seas. And I want to say at that point, there were three to four meter seas pitching around in some place they had obviously never been before. And they ended up just everybody holding the gear. It's like, you hold the fishing gear, you hold the water, you hold the flashlights. Because every time there weren't pockets to stow the gear in the life raft. And um, they did a great job in in Mm -hmm. getting together afterwards and going through the pros and cons of living in a life raft for 24 hours and what worked and what didn't work. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I I can attest to that too. What you're saying is you may not have the ability Mm -hmm. to dump out all your gear and sort through everything. You might, so the, the case I had where there were three fishermen, they were in emergency suits, they were in their life raft, but when their life raft deployed, it didn't inflate all the way. It only half inflated, Mm -hmm. which is also a possibility as well. You don't know if these life rafts are going to function properly. Uh, when's the last time they were inspected? Sometimes they go a long time without being inspected and you don't know. I I also learned that life rafts are only designed to last like four days tops and they just deflate slowly. Like because they assume life raft manufacturers assume that rescue is going to be on the way, or if it if it didn't come within that amount of time, then people probably can't last much longer than that. I didn't know that. I I imagine there'd be some deflation happening over the course of you know a week yeah. or so, but I, that's a little scary. But I have inflated one before, you know, an expired one. Uh, you know, it's time to buy a new life raft, so let's inflate this and just have this experience, and it didn't last long. 
I believe it. A couple days. Yeah. But it was also an old one, so who knows? Okay. So these gentlemen, they when they, when their life raft inflated, there's two cylinders and they inflate two different tubes. So only one of the tubes inflated and the canopy itself didn't inflate. So when I swam up to these guys, uh, their life raft was full of water, like almost up to the top. And it was maybe seven to 10 foot seas kind of, but seas were coming in over the top. They looked a little scared. Actually, it's kind of funny. When I swam up, I'd, I'd always rehearse what I was going to say to people in a life raft if I, if I had a case like that. And I didn't know what I was going to say. And I swam up and I said, hey, guys, I'm sorry. I'm totally lost. Can you tell me where the nearest Dunkin' Donuts is? <laughs> and, I hope they laughed. They did. It was, it was a little bit of a chuckle. Uh, I think yeah. I think it kind of broke the ice and kind of hopefully reassured them that, hey, guys, we're going to be OK. I mean, it was the middle of the night offshore in the ocean. So obviously they were a little stressed. But But when you talk about being able to utilize different uh, accessories in a life raft or different things that'll help save your life. If you've got a life raft full of water, you can't really dump everything out. It's going to get washed no. over, overboard. So you need to know what you have in there and be able to take out piece by piece, whatever you can use. Um, and it turned out when I got the last guy out of the raft, um, I was pulling, we call it a buddy tow. I was buddy towing him through the water. And my fin caught on the inflation lanyard of the second cylinder. Um, I didn't know what it was caught on. I just felt it pulling. And I, I tried to reach down to get it off, couldn't get it off. And then I went, well, I'll just kick harder. And finally, I kicked harder and it pulled. And it actually inflated the other cylinder. Oh, geez. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that at the time. So it would have worked. Yeah, it would have worked. worked. So that's also oh, something <laughs> if you can, if you're super familiar with these rafts and you know where their cylinders are, it might be something that you might be able to manually um, inflate mm -hmm. if it doesn't inflate all the way. But so I sent the guy up in the basket. And so my job now is to go and, and uh, pop the raft and deflate it so that nobody else gets launched on this life raft later on that we don't, mm -hmm. you know waste uh our assets on it so i go back to the raft and i didn't realize it hadn't connected in my mind that it it had inflated all the way and i went back and it, it the canopy was up it looked like a perfect raft just full of water and i went mm -hmm. were there two rafts i got so confused for a second and then i went oh okay i think i know what happened and i popped it but it, mm -hmm. it just goes mm -hmm. to show that's what it's supposed to do but it's not always going to going to inflate all the way so you need to be prepared yeah i mean it is a, it is a backup boat it's not designed it's not designed like a cruising boat is designed right. to withstand exactly. a lot so and i know this is probably an unrealistic proposition for most folks but best practice is always when your life raft gets inspected make it ask your your packing place if you can be there when they inflate it and if you mm -hmm. can see what's in the life raft and every one of the life rafts comes with a packing list so you know all of the gear that's in there and when i do my um, person overboard drills or abandoned ship drills things like that particularly abandoned ship i'd pull out the packing list and have folks go through what's in there so that they know what to expect and mm -hmm. in some of the courses you can 
take in preparedness for you know cruising or some of the offshore racing they'll bring the gear that's in the life raft or the stand you know the standard life raft first aid kit and the fishing gear and the the signal mirror and the paddles and all that so you can take a look at them but if you can just um, talk to your your life raft packing company and say hey are you going to be inflating any life like six person or four person or two person life rafts in the near future can i come up and watch it so you you know what it looks like and you know what's in it long before you ever have to use it oh definitely so i wanted to ask you both about your perspective since we're talking about abandoned ship and getting in a life raft and calling for help this is when um, we've done everything we possibly can in terms of our training and keeping safe and preventing the problem um but it overwhelmed us. Something happened. Maybe we made a mistake or maybe it was just a really overwhelming situation. And um, and now we have to abandon ship. I've noticed that when things like this, when disasters happen at sea like this, um, there's a lot of chatter online. When the bounty sank, when uh, sail vessel Rebel Heart, when they had to call for help. And and it's it, there's a lot of there's a lot of online shaming you know, involved in that, like they should have done this instead, or they weren't smart enough, or now they're wasting taxpayers' dollars calling for help. And, and I just, um, it breaks my heart a little bit, because I feel like these, these people need help. And we really don't know. It's usually not one stupid mistake that leads to a disaster. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts, you get overwhelmed by a lot of little things, and maybe you've made good choices along the way. But we, we really don't know what happened aboard those boats, no matter how much we surmise. But uh, And I wonder how you both feel about this, about needing to call for help and how we should feel about those those dramatic moments when that, you know, when we look back and reflect on them. I feel like uh, there shouldn't be any blame or shame put on these people right off the bat. Um, what happened, happened. Uh, there was some sort of emergency. Sometimes it's just a rogue wave. You know, there's a lot of different things that could have happened. And I think a lot of people look at it from, you know, the armchair quarterback perspective and say, oh, they must be terrible at sailing or be terrible at, you know, driving a boat. You know, this is their fault. And that's not always the case. A lot of times that's not the case. Um, sometimes thunderstorms come out of nowhere and or squalls or something like that um i will say there are some cases that we've had in the past where there is some foul play involved or something that happened um and it gets investigated and actually goes to court but those are Mm -hmm. those are few and far between uh when it comes to emergency situations where like a vessel sinks or something like that um there was a I had a case that was a trimaran this summer as well, about three weeks after that raft case I was just talking about. And mm-hmm. a thunderstorm came out of nowhere. They're 20 miles off of uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, they tried to kind of outrun the thunderstorm and they turned too fast and they got hit, you know, with a wave and, and it capsized them right off the bat. Um, I think the mm-hmm. port, the important thing is not necessarily to examine how it happened, to examine were they prepared you know, what, what steps did they take to prepare for that emergency that allowed them to get rescued? I think that's the important part. And these guys didn't mm-hmm. have life jackets on. They didn't, mm-hmm. they weren't wearing them. They were on a sailing vessel 20 miles offshore and they weren't wearing life jackets. And that's a very dangerous, they're very, very lucky. Two guys were thrown off. 
one guy was in the cabin and had to swim out to get out of it. But, mm-hmm. but so things like that, um, I don't know. I'll let, I'll let Deborah talk on it too. Cause that's kind of my point of view is like, we don't worry about what happened. We just worry about making sure that these people get home to their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess three mm-hmm. points. First of all, as a mariner, so I sailed professionally for 30 years and I always knew that if the things went south and we had to abandon ship that, and this is just touting for you guys, Brian, the U S coast guard was there to save us. And I have a deep respect for the U S coast guard for taking care of mariners. And uh, so I wanted to say that first. So thank you so much. I always felt safe. Glad to hear and, it. Glad to hear it. And the the goal again, as you as you all have mentioned, is my mission was always prevention because I had other people's lives in my hands all the time. And um, so it was about having to never have to call you, but knowing you were there if I needed you. And then from the 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 rescue point of view for those who have gone through the experience where they had to call the Coast Guard for help. Two points, just making sure that it really is necessary to call them so that you're not wasting assets or wasting their lives or going in the helicopter mentality if things go south and I don't like the situation, I can always call the U.S. Coast Guard to helicopter me out of here. And we cannot have the helicopter mentality. It has to be preparedness, training, prevention, and then as a last resort when you know you are unable to deal with the situation and it's worth putting other people's lives at stake to help you, then you make the call. Um, mm-hmm. But that, and then on the flip side, once someone has gone through an abandoned ship and has been rescued, boy, as mariners, look for those reports, look for the Coast Guard reports. And if it's been a big casualty, look for the National Transportation Safety um, Bureau's reports so that you can learn from things that have happened at sea, because there is almost always a human element and in there on top of that that led to the accident or incident is a weather complication or a mechanical complication or a design complication um, or Or all of the above or all of the above (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so by going through and sometimes on well particularly when I was working with the, the last vessel I worked with where I was carrying teenagers to try and make the drills more realistic or like the message more realistic, we would sit down and part of the homework assignment would be to go through a case study of someone who sank or someone who had Mm -hmm. someone go overboard or a shipboard fire so that they could read through how it happened and how other people responded. So kind of sink home in their minds. And um, so I would urge folks to go online and look at incidents that have happened on vessels similar to theirs or with uh, the demographic that's similar to the folks who are sailing on board their cruising boats so they can see um, to learn from other people's incidences. And a great article, since you're talking about that, one that we use in our training programs is by Andy Chase. It's called Lessons from the Bounty. Yeah. And it is, it's such a great article about just assessing the problems and making all these small choices along the way that each individual choice probably wouldn't have led to a disaster, but it's the com- 
it's the combination of all the problems along the way. But and I your- just want to tack on that as mm-hmm. I would urge people to look up the Concordia report because mm-hmm. that was a Canadian sail training vessel. So it was the Canadian version of the national transportations, but the report on that and the, the paperwork that Bill Curry, the captain put together so many things to learn from um, abandoned ship life rafts, um, the, de- the decisions that were, were made to abandon ship and how to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, so either one of those, and, and Andy's uh, article was great. He, he mm-hmm. certainly did a lot of research on that, but I would urge folks to look at both of those. Um, and to your point, Deb, that you were saying about don't call the Coast Guard until you know that you're in a situation that you can't handle. Like it's it's that mayday moment. It's time. We need help. We're not going to pull through this. Um, there is, I feel like there is an option before that. And I just taught a webinar online about um, VHF communication. And, um, and I say, okay, if you're near shore, you can pick up the phone and call the Coast Guard, have it programmed in your phone, have it posted next to your comm station. Um, but you can also do Mayday. But also, there's another option, which is Pon Pon, which yeah. the way I explain it is it's urgent, but we're managing. It could become an emergency. And um, and you can call up the Coast Guard in that way and say, look, this is what's going on. We're taking on water, but so far our bilge pumps are working, and, um, and so we're making our way back to port. But port is 20 miles away or something, and if we don't – if if, so, if one more problem happens, if someone can't continue pumping the bilge, if the bil- one of the bilge pumps stops working or, you know, one more problem happens and now suddenly we're in our life rafts. So yeah. I, feel like, I feel like there's that opportunity to, if you're not sure, to just tell them what's going on. And especially if, you're, uh, if you can hail them on the radio, a lot of times the Coast Guard people will talk you through it and say, well, Oh, absolutely. And we were always mm-hmm. urged urged by the Coast Guard when we have our inspections every year was, you know, give us a call early. And I remember very distinctly when it changed with um, the person overboard is even if you even if you think you can handle it or a fire um, or taking mm-hmm. on water, even if you think you can handle this, give us a call. That way we can get ready to respond and then we can always stand down, but call us early so that we're ready to help you. Absolutely. And there was one time where that happened to us. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Oh, but no. There, there was... There was one time where that happened to us. We, um, our boat was still pretty new. It was the first year we had it, and um, every year the boat gets that gets better and better. But we we haven't had many emergencies at sea, thankfully. But um, one time we were taking on water very rapidly. It was just like gushing into the bilge, and we were really healed over. And what the we, what the reason was is there was no si- siphon break in the bilge pump hose. And so um, the water was backflowing and coming in very quickly. And so I noticed the water coming in, didn't know where it was coming from at the time. And we, Ben and I just went right to, it was a nice, sunny, calm day, beautiful. Everyone's like laughing, having a good time. We had just left port a few hours earlier, ice cream in our bellies, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. And um, I saw the water coming in and I was like, Ben, look at this. And we immediately went to work, like the checklist of all the things we had to do, which was, you know, close all the seacocks, get the bilge pumps going. We had three bilge pumps at the time. We have four now. We had uh, one electric, one we call the Grande bilge pump, which is a high volume, one manual bilge pump. And now we have a second portable manual bilge pump. And uh, we just got them all going. We gave people jobs. Okay, you, you're going to pump the bilge with this manual bilge pump. And you're, can you tack and head back to port, straight back to port? Um, 
And then we called the the harbor master from the port that we were that we had just left from, and we told them what was going on. And we're like, we're headed back right now. They said, okay, we have high volume bilge pumps for you. And they've you know they cleared the docks. So we had a space, and they had all these bilge pumps for us. But yeah, that moment was like it was coming in so fast. I thought, oh my goodness, if we don't stop this water, if we can't figure this out and stop the water, then we're gonna sink. <laughs> like that's honestly what I yeah. thought. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, as soon as we closed all the seacocks, it stopped coming in. But yeah, that's scary. And I to piggyback on on what you were saying and what Deborah was saying, and you always have the ability to call out to the Coast Guard on 16. You're probably going to speak to someone at a sector, you know, whether it's sector Long Island, sector northern New England, and just tell them your situation. Tell them what's going on. And what they're going to do is they're going to start a radio guard with you. And they're going to check in on you every 15 minutes, you know, as long as you feel like the situation is manageable. And as happens in certain circumstances, if something happens where a boat capsizes and they lose communication with you because now you don't have your cell phone, they will immediately launch either the helicopter or a boat nearby on you. So it's always something that we as the Coast Guard are happy to do is happy to have a guard with you when emergent situations are kind of arising in those type of uh, scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've done that before where we've just gone out, we've orbited above a boat that's in a precarious situation. Um, We had a boat that was taking on water during a nor'easter a couple of years ago in February and their entire stern was underwater. Everything was slided like Mm -hmm. these giant fish containers were sliding across the deck and the aircraft commander made the decision not to put me down at that time because it looked like they were about to tip. And we ended up putting a dewatering pump down to the boat. It was about 25 foot seas. And the crew was able to get the dewatering pump on board and dewater the vessel to where they could get their generators back on and make way um, and kind of limp into Woods Hole. And we kind of, we, we escorted them the whole way. We were ready, you know. I had my gear ready if something happened and they went over or sunk and uh, they sent a Coast Guard cutter out as well. Um, So even if we're not actively rescuing someone, we can be there to either deliver a pump or escort someone and just make sure that they're safe. And it's so important for everybody to know how to use those bilge pumps and to be familiar with dewatering pumps, because when the time comes, it's got to be muscle memory. Slow mm-hmm. is smooth, smooth is fast. That's what we say. That's our motto. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> it helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have to ask you guys about this just random um, situation that I that involved me as the person who was hurt. Um, no one could figure out what was going on, and I was surrounded by wilderness first responders. And in fact. The incident happened on an outward bound training, my very first one. And, um, you know, everybody there is pro and then uh, or training to be. And then um, and then the day after it was the last day and the day after I started my wilderness first responder training. So what happened was um, the last day of the outward bound training, we were doing our um, abandoned ship drills. And in, in this situation, we would put on the immersion suits, the big the the like. They're like sleeping bags with arms and legs. Gumby suits, we call them. 
And yes. was this for the pulling boats? Is that why yeah. you were doing? Okay. Well, this, this was in the Northwest, so it was for the long oh. boats, we guess. Very oh, okay. similar program. Right. Okay. And so we, we get on the, the idea was you get in the suit, we did a capsize drill, you know, the gears are floating around in the water, and then you get with all your crew and you huddle together and lock arms and sing songs and wait for help. You know, we're just, this is our scenario, right? And, um, and so I was not, I didn't have much tolerance for cold water at the time. I've since been on a training program to increase my tolerance for cold water. And <laughs> I, I did it, but I probably am not very tolerant anymore again. But um, I, uh, I got cold and, you know, shivering and um, just uh, a little aloof was my mentality at the time. And then after we were all done, I took a hot shower. And the next day, I woke up and my feet were on pins and needles, like, you know, when they fall asleep. And throughout the day, it got progressively worse from pins and needles to stabbing knives in my feet. And that's what it felt like. Now, if you looked at my feet, they looked perfectly normal and they, the toes wiggled and everything was, nothing looked different. And nobody could figure out what was going on. And it got progressively worse and worse every day to the point where I just was so in so much pain and so uncomfortable all the time that I ended up going to, and I was in a woofer training. So we're like all like assessing my feet and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and so that was my medical mystery. Do you have so, any ideas? I mean, it's some, it sounds like some kind of neuropathy, but did you ever get an answer from anyone? Because my first yes. response is, I'm going to take notes and send this to my medical director, David Johnson, and say, hey, TJ, have you ever heard of anything like this before? Because I, yes. I, I, how about you, Brian? I mean, I, I can't even begin to say other than that sounds like some kind of thermo thermo like triggered neuropathy yeah i'm kind of on the mm -hmm. same page with you i was going to say first of all you never build up a tolerance to cold water i can attest to that i've been in, in <laughs> mentally you do five years in cold water yeah maybe mentally but physically never it sucks every time but um it does suck every time but i do feel like i was able to stay in and function well longer and longer you're more prepared for what's coming. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. As Deborah said, I think it does sound like some kind of neuropathy, like possibly uh, you were in a hypothermic state and you were, maybe you had some nerve damage in your feet that even though like the color mm -hmm. came back and um, I, I know a guy that I work with that had that happen on a mountain case. He was wearing a dry suit and he sweat. Uh, he had to get firewood. He stayed overnight with a it was a SWAT team that got stranded in the mountains mm -hmm. and he stayed overnight and he sweat into his feet. And then it froze when the winds came in, this is in Oregon and he's had a similar type of thing happen to him where it sounds like he had some nerve damage in his feet. Is this something that's ongoing? So I'll tell you what the the diagnosis was. Oh, okay. Uh, the doctors Curious. were mystified. Was, a little was it too. Renault's phenomenon or anything like that? What was it? You know, I think it is called that. I was trying to remember what it was called. Yeah. And um, they toyed with trench foot for a while, but trench foot would show like um, like a fungus or something, right, on the foot. Like you'd look different, I think. Well, it's a um, breakdown of the flesh and in, in the wet, yeah, cold environment. I didn't yeah, My buddy I didn't had have that foot. at all. <laughs> that was yeah. what his diagnosis was. Yeah. I didn't have that at all, and I wasn't in the water a long time either. Um, but what it was was the nerve damage. Like yeah. the nerves, I was in the water long enough that I was cold, and so yeah. my veins are vasoconstricted to protect my, to bring all the blood towards my heart and whatnot. 
and the toes are the furthest away. And so they got the least amount of blood and oxygen. And so the nerves just started to die back. And did and, you have um, any background in poor circulation? Like, are you a popsicle toe kind of person before that happened? <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, not, not, that okay. I, not that I know of. I don't know. Uh, can I throw in a pitch here? So sure. <laughs> um, there's uh, a really good uh, Canadian uh, scientist named Gordon Giesbrecht, who I think you guys are familiar with, but who's done an enormous amount of research in cold water immersion and hypothermia. And uh, Brian, you may have even taken this. He has a thing called the cold water boot camp, which is for, and he's worked with Coast Guard rescue swimmers and mm. PJs. And so helping folks understand physiologically what happens to you when you're immersed in cold water. But um, it certainly used to be available on YouTube, and it's a great learning uh, set of videos that talk about what happens to you physiologically when you're immersed in cold water. And I, he absolutely backs up what you said, Brian, is you cannot, the, the body cannot desensitize itself completely for its reactions for cold water immersion. You're, you will have, and he sort of put together this um, uh, pitch for public awareness and one ten one the idea of you will if you are immersed in cold water jump in cold water you're going to have about a minute of hyperventilation it's going to be <laughs> and he tried to desensitize himself to that he put like graduate students in the icy cold water in Alaska, and they Ooh. couldn't get folks not to have that hyperventilation. So why does Hold that on matter? Hold a second. For, I feel no. like I don't have that shock. I call that the shock response. We're just right. like, if, uh, if you can't you talk. Jump in, or it just mm -hmm. it makes you breathe faster. And the, mm -hmm. the takeaway on that is know it's going to happen. So if you fall in cold water, keep your head above water so you don't mm -hmm. drown. You yeah. got to keep your head above water roughly a minute. And then maybe 10 to 20 minutes of usable muscle and nerves because you're getting mm -hmm. your cold muscles and cold nerves don't work. And then hypothermia can set in in an hour to multiple hours, depending on the temperature of the water and your, right. your physical build. And we had an interesting pickup of a person overboard when I was on my last boat that I ran. We picked up somebody in the Northwest Providence Channel who had been in the water for 21 hours. And um, we were we were the closest That's a vessel. Long time. Yeah, you bet it was. Oh closest God. vessel for the issue. There was a, a Coast Guard rescue plane that was doing a search grid over our area and they called us on the radio and said, hey, you're the closest vessel. Uh, there's a report of someone who fell off a tanker and by that time it had been 19 hours and the water temperature was in the 70s. So it was wintertime, Northwest Providence Channel, perfect conditions, flat calm, flat calm. Um, we were motoring at, the, at that point uh, and uh, we ended up picking him up, finding him. And I was talking to the students at that point or the mates before that, I was sure it was going to be a body recovery. And there was no way after 21 hours, this person was going to still be alive. And um, so we, there's a flare that gets dropped and it was dropped by the, the Coast Guard plane. And we motored over to there and the, the my mate um, said, wait a minute, I see something. And he, this guy who fell overboard was bald. And so the sun was reflecting off of his head. And then he waved his arm like, holy crow, this person is not dead. They're way alive. And we mm -hmm. got him on board 
And um, basically, <laughs> he had kicked off every every stitch of clothing. The literally all he was wearing was his wedding ring. That was it. I mean, that was all he was wearing. So I had six teenage girls on board and one teenage guy, and we get him in the cockpit, and um, we get a blanket on him and get food in him and try. Get, I'm thinking dehydration and hypothermia. And he starts um, signaling, he couldn't speak English, but he started signaling for um, a drink. And then he signaled for a cigarette. And of course we were a dry boat and didn't have any (laughs) cigarettes on board. But pretty much by the time we transferred him to another boat to take him in for a medical workup, all he was diagnosed with was mild dehydration and mild hypothermia after 21 wow. hours. Wow. Oh and he was also well insulated. He was sort of built like Santa Claus. So he had um, he had some padding to help keep him warm. <laughs> but I was, I was amazed. I mean, the thing I learned from that, I've always been taught by, in the courses that, that I take for what I teach is, hypothermia takes a whole lot longer in terms of actually reducing the central core temperature than most people think. And by God, this guy, mild hypothermia after 21 hours, pretty, oh, sorry. Yeah. Mild hypothermia after 21 miles, very, very remarkable. But it was also a learning moment for me as a captain. We had always practiced to recover those of us on board. So they were all fit. They were all small. They were all trim. Um, and mm-hmm. this guy and dressed. Uh, <laughs> and, and dressed, and this guy was well around three hundred pounds. So it was more challenging to get him on board than yeah. anybody else who fell overboard. So. That's amazing. I the cold water. We do a lot of cold water up here in Maine because the water is sure. so cold. But um, w- some of the things that we do, like when we do training with the students, their swim test. They jump in. Now, this is not with more self necessarily, but with our outward bound students. They jump in and they have to swim the length of the dock yeah. just to see how well they swim. And then when they're at the length, at the end, they have to tread water for like, a, I don't know, 10 seconds. And we ask them a question. What's, do you play a musical instrument? What's your favorite right. movie? And see how well they communicate because of that shock thing where you're like, Ugh! and you just can't say anything. You feel like your chest is collapsing. But um but I think that one thing that I learned from doing like the long swims and stuff that I've had to do um, and tasks where I have to swim over here and do this and swim over here and do that. Um, and then you get back on the dock, you climb up the ladder and get back on the dock and try to walk. It's like your legs are like jello, like gumby yeah. legs and you collapse because, you know, the muscles are are so cold. They're just not. It's like they're just not strong enough to hold you up anymore. I was going to say for Deborah's story, that was probably the first time that guy was actually grateful for being bald. He's got that natural signal mirror coming off his head. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. That's how we saw him. But to piggyback off of what she said, I was going to talk about cold water shock, and she took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say the one ten one rule, the one minute where you your body compensates for that shock of entering the water, the 10 minutes for dexterity, Mm -hmm. and being able to use a radio, a PLB, anything like that, 10 minutes, and then the hour for if it's really cold water, you got about an hour of consciousness. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. this is where life jackets and immersion suits really come into play and are so important because if your vessel goes over and you go head first into the water and you get that initial cold water shock, what your body's going to want to do is take in a big breath. And so many people have actually drowned in cold water 50 yards from shore because the minute they go in, they don't have that life jacket to keep their head above water. They take in 
water into their lungs right off the bat and fill their mm-hmm. lungs with that cold water. And, and then they, it's downhill from there. Um, and there have been documented cases with the Coast Guard where a boat is capsized in, uh, you know, 30, high 30s, low 40 degree water with four people on board. They didn't have life jackets and the helicopter was five minutes away. They got the call. They said, here's the position. We're five minutes away. Oh, piece of cake. We're going to get here. We're going to pick up these four people and we're going to take them home. And they arrived on scene and all four of the people had already drowned. And the reason for that is the cold water shock. Whereas if they had a life jacket, it's possible that that life jacket could keep your head above water or that immersion suit, Mm -hmm. which is so important in that, in those Arctic cold water environments. Mm -hmm. It it attempts, it attempts to retain some warmth and it also floats you really well. That guy that Deborah was talking about, that's called paradoxical undressing. I'm sure you've heard of it. Your vessels on the outside of your body kind of shunt and constrict to push the blood into your core, but they can only hold the blood into your core for so long. It's a muscle just like anything else. So when they relax, all the blood that was in your core goes straight to your skin on all your body and you feel overheated. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. And it it generally, I don't know how long, it depends how long it takes, but being 21 hours in the water, those muscles probably couldn't constrict anymore and relax and all the blood went to his skin and he went, I got to take off all my clothes. That, or maybe he was trying to tread water which we also see. Yeah, and yeah. because of the language barrier, because on it, he, um, <laughs> we, we call him a super naked Polish guy uh, because he, because <laughs> he, he was, and, um, and, but we never were able to speak because he couldn't speak a word of English because I was thinking, all right, you took the clothes off to try and trap air and use them as some sort of um, flotation device, but I couldn't ask him because he couldn't speak a word of English. But it was so funny as they're sitting there in the cockpit and I'm I'm basically at that point working as the medical officer. So I'm thinking, okay, we need, and the crew responded beautifully. They brought all the supplies up, the food, the medical kit, the blankets, the water, everything once, uh, and of course the, the rescue gear that we used to get him out of the water. And I'm sitting there and, and doing a medical evaluation on him. And one of the students comes up to me and says, Miss Hayes, would you like me to get him some clothes? Because he's sitting there just with a blanket around his shoulders and, uh, you know, basically all the anatomy was sitting right there <laughs> smiling right at us. And I, I'm so concentrated on just the medical evaluation, making sure he's warm and making sure we get some calories on board that I forgot the simple human dignities of making sure he has those parts covered. So it's, it's sort of, it was, it was also another learning moment for me as like, oh yeah, okay, he's naked. Let's get him some clothes other than a blanket. So one of the things that we do on our expeditions is we have all our students, and these are adult students, uh, fill out a medical questionnaire before they come. Um, have you ever been seasick? What prescription meds are you taking? Are you going to be taking them on the trip? And then like you were saying earlier, Deb, we ask them to bring an extra supply in a Ziploc bag to stash in the abandoned ship bag of those prescription meds. And then... Uh, you know, and ask a bunch of basic questions so that if we do need to take this person to the hospital or if someone needs to pick them up from the boat for an emergency, we have this, or and they're not conscious, maybe, we have this form to give them, this is what we know about the person, maybe any other notes we've taken about what happened on the boat, why why they had a, why they need to go to the hospital. But um, what other kinds of things, and maybe Brian, 
when you pick somebody up, what kinds of things do you wish you knew about? And Deb, when you are taking a crew on board, do you ask these questions in advance? What kinds of things is it important to know about before you sail with somebody? Uh, I would say uh, there's a lot of things that we wish we knew about, especially with the fishing fleet when we go do medevacs off fishing vessels. Um, a lot of times people don't know their own medical history. Uh, the captain of the boat oftentimes won't know the medical history of the person we're picking up. Sometimes they don't speak English and they can't give us any kind of background on whether they have diabetes, whether, you know, they've had heart attacks in the past, anything like that, any medications they're on. So that's a huge one is trying to figure out and know their medical history. Um, mm -hmm. The other one I was going to talk about was uh, one thing that we've seen lacking a lot in the medevacs that we do are tourniquets on board um, fishing vessels and different vessels. Uh, I've had buddies that have had cases where the person needed a tourniquet and the people on board had kind of fashioned a tourniquet out of something like a shirt or a belt or something. Um, but when you have an em emergencies offshore on a vessel, the, the one thing that's going to kill you is blood loss. That's one of the major factors. If you have a compound fracture that's bleeding, if you have some artery that gets sliced, if you don't have a good tourniquet right there, we're not even going to be able to get there in time to help. So we, uh, my buddy had a case where a guy, uh, they brought a fishing, the fishing net on board and there was a 350 pound stingray that they didn't see right at the edge of the net. And the guy was walking past it and the stingrays, um, stinger, I guess, quill, I don't know what you, what you call it, went straight mm -hmm. into the front of his, his shin into his leg and caused a big enough wound that he was bleeding uncontrollably. Um, and, uh, my coworker had to put a tourniquet on it when he got down on scene. You wouldn't believe the size of this, this, uh, stingrays. <laughs> I've no, I didn't know they get that big. It, it looked like something out of the movie alien, but so <laughs> having things like tourniquets, um, like you said, medications on board, um, is huge. And just knowing their, their medical history, um, and also in terms of, um, diabetes and basically being low blood sugar, having some sort mm -hmm. of glucose or glucose paste or something on board, uh, would help us tremendously because it, it could keep them from becoming combative or mm -hmm. not responding, you know? So mm -hmm. those are kind of the things I think about for medical. Does anybody ever give you a, like a note, like notes taken on the back of a napkin or something like here, this is what we know about the person. Does that ever happen? Because when you do those wilderness medical trainings, they're always like document this and here's how to do it. And this is what you're going to hand off to the professionals when they arrive. And uh, to be honest, I don't feel like I've ever gotten something like that unless there's another <laughs> medical professional on board. Like if we take a nurse mm -hmm. or a paramedic, obviously they've got the whole history, but from people on fishing boats, especially it's, it's more like, ah, oh, I don't know. You know, he, uh, he drank this and ate that and whatever. And that's another thing too, is for us, um, knowing if they're, they drink alcohol, um, mm -hmm. even if they've done some type of drug, 
it's important for the people that we're medevacing or rescuing to know that we're not the cops. You know, mm -hmm. we're not going to send them to jail if they're on some sort of illegal substance. But from a medical standpoint, it's important for us to know, okay, you were on this substance or you're under the effects of this, you know, before we administer this drug or, or provide care, it's important to know as well. And a lot of times I think mm -hmm. people assume that because we're the Coast Guard, we're the police and we're doing the search and rescue. It's not our job to prosecute people. There are areas of the Coast Guard that do that, the law enforcement mm -hmm. side. But from a search and rescue standpoint, it's just helpful information for us. Yeah. And the things I want to mention based on your question is the idea that some of the most valuable information you're going to get is sitting down with whoever you're sailing with. And this is as simple as you're going for an afternoon sail with your best friend and just ask. And the way I would always phrase it is, hey, if you get knocked out and I have to get medical attention for you, what should I know about you? And then when you're planning like for an offshore voyage or an overnight or just something a little bit longer and make sure you get that information. And if you want to use like a standardized medical form just to kind of prompt you on the things to ask. But I found that if you like taking strangers to sea or sailing with folks you don't know, keep it unthreatening, keep it casual but formal if you know what i mean and just say honest i hey if something bad happens if you get knocked out by the boom and i have to deal with you or call the coast guard or bring you to the hospital what should i know about you that you don't think i know so i can give good medical information to the medical care provider that i turn you over to and um the the thing i'm finding is as we get older folks over 50 or over 60 tend to be on medications and i'll specifically ask hey are you know are you ask are you on any prescription medication or do you commonly take any over-the-counter medication you know like tylenol or ibuprofen just so i kind of know what might be in their system and um when you were just asking sort of the first questions about what would you wish to know Boy, it sounds like, Brian, you've had lots of run-ins with patients who are diabetics, and mine have been more asthma and hypotension. And just because there will be situations where someone has had a long history of asthma but hasn't had an asthma attack in a long time, now you put them in a stressful situation like a storm or bad, uh, different sleeping habits or different diet, different stress, because maybe they've never been in bad weather before. They've, I, in, a, in my case, one was a swimming event, one was a snorkeling event, and this person just got really excited and kicked into an asthma attack. And even though medical forms were required for the participation, both they and their parents decided not to list that because they hadn't had an attack in three years. They didn't want it to um, make it so they couldn't come on the trip. And they had a full-blown asthma attack. And then mm -hmm. I had a student, same thing, decided not to list hypotension, so low blood pressure. And we were in the tropics. We were down, well, not in the tropics. We were in the Bahamas. And he got really hot and sweaty and passed out. He had listed he had a history of asthma, but 
So everybody's thinking uh, asthma attack and I'm off clearing at customs and I come back and the mate and a whole bunch of students are around this kid who's passed out on the, on the dock. Mm -hmm. And what it turned out was, you know, undisclosed medical information. He was hypotensive and he simply passed out because he was dehydrated and that exacerbated the hypotension, the low blood pressure. And it turned out not really to be any kind of medical emergency. But at that point, we were all thinking asthma, asthma, asthma. And so anyway, I just, mm -hmm. again, I would go back to just sit down. Like if, if, if you and I were sailing together for the first time, it'd be like, Hey, you know, this is what, this is what you should know about me. This is what in my system, yeah. this is what medically is going on. Um, hey, and how even about like you? you? Even like you said that low, blood pressure and the asthma that they haven't had an attack in years and years, these things might not be bothering them anymore, but it's in their, it's in their history. And now they're taken into a new environment yeah. where they're not drinking enough water, where the sun's always beating down on them. Where, where they're, they're stressed, they're nervous, they're yes. excited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's what experiential education is all about. You know, that controlled um, excitement. So that it's controlled not too chaos. exciting, but it's <laughs> yeah. exciting enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yep. So we've talked for a really, really long time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep asking you guys lots and lots of questions, but I just wondered if there's anything else that you think would be great to talk about that we haven't talked about. I was just going to make a quick point um, in terms of medical preparedness and just gear preparedness, making sure that all of your gear on your boat is up to date. Uh, you'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes when we hoist someone off a boat or out of the water, we'll, we'll get the, uh, the life jacket as memorabilia. And we got some life jackets we've gotten recently that look like they're from the 1950s. You know, these mm -hmm. things, these things would not pass an inspection. And there's a lot of boats that still have these old, this old equipment that's not necessarily up to date or even adequate you know, for what they're doing out there and going offshore. So equipment, uh, immersion suits, raft, all that stuff, make sure all that stuff's up to date. Also medical gear. It sounds like from your medical kit, you could patch up a hundred people, which is awesome. And I think that's <laughs> great. Uh, hopefully you never have a hundred people on your boat. That wouldn't be good. No, <laughs> but, uh, but a lot of, uh, the, medevacs that we go on when we get on scene whether this person has a wound i had a guy that had a severed finger and the way it was bandaged up it just wasn't great and it didn't look like they had the appropriate gear to bandage it properly mm -hmm. so i kind of added to that and bandaged it a little differently but we see that kind of time and time again going down to boats is either they've got old outdated gear or they're not prepared uh, they didn't know how to use it. They didn't know how to. Or they didn't it. have it exactly. Yeah, they mm -hmm. didn't have the first aid training or even some basic training on how to bandage up a wound, which is super helpful for us. You know, it can save time. It's always a little, um, a little frustrating to have to buy new gear, like you're talking about, buy new updated gear when your gear expires, and you're looking at this old gear, and you're like, this has never been used. You know, this life jacket has never been used. This yeah. safety whatever has never been used. And now it's this flare has never been used. And now I have to get rid of it and buy a whole new one. And that's that always can be a little frustrating, but it is super important. I, in fact, I remember we I had a, and this was not sailing, this was climbing Mount Rainier. We had a medical urgency and uh, we were an eight people team and only three of us summited because of this 
medical urgency, and it was simply because someone didn't have sunglasses. Oh no! Right. Yeah, yeah. And it just snowballed. Oh jeez, snowballed. You know, no there. pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow. But simple things like that, you know, like a sun shirt, sunglasses, brimmed visor, wa- good water bottle that you love drinking out of. <laughs> You know, all we'll those take expired flares uh-huh. sometimes and just pop them off on a training flight, you know, to extend mm-hmm. them. And I've had multiple expired flares not go off, you know, mm. and if you're in a situation where it's life or death, you don't want to see that thing fizzle right. out and go, oh, no. So, yeah, it is super important for sure. Yes, we've done that too with flares and fire extinguishers and stuff, like use them when they're expired. But if anybody does that for training, you want to learn about it, you have to call the Coast Guard and let them know ahead of time. That's right. Otherwise, they'll think you have an emergency. Please don't set flares off as fireworks. (laughs) They're not fireworks. Don't do it on the beach. This is a public service announcement. You'd be surprised (laughs) how many times we get launched on fireworks or flares that people were shooting as fireworks. So. Yeah. I want to throw that out there. <laughs> There's a time and a place. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to we're going to wrap up. I appreciate you both talking with me. It's been definitely really interesting, enjoyable, um and I think everybody learned a lot. I definitely I still think the most important thing that that anybody listening here could learn that is going to go sailing is to take a training course like from you, Deb, one of those wilderness first responder courses or something like that for prevention, you know. And hopefully they never um, see me. <laughs> hopefully. Actually, hopefully job. we never need to see Yeah, you. that's what I mean. Hopefully they never need to see, see me. Yes. <laughs> but we're there if you need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we appreciate you so much. Oh, and appreciate you. that we know, you know, in the back of our head, we know you're there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to stop the recording now. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at morsealpha expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother. And you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found.